Hey everybody, come on over here. It's the Northern Miner Podcast. Welcome to episode 98 of the Northern Miner podcast. Thanks for joining us. My name is John Cumming. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. We're going to take a little break from our normal kind of schedule, and uh, this episode we're going to focus solely on uh, Peter Monk's life. Peter Monk passed away uh, last week, and um, our senior staff writer Trish Saywell is working on a feature story on his life, and um, we're going to sit down and talk about... uh, some of the highlights of his uh, rem- truly remarkable life. and uh, But first off, uh, you know, we have no paywall on our podcast. We give it away free through SoundCloud, through uh, iTunes, through our own website. And uh, the reason we can do that is because we have sponsors. And uh, so if you ever see our sponsors, just give them a thank you for supporting the podcast. And our sponsors are the Grosso Group out of Vancouver. That is uh, led by Joe Grosso, of course. And the Grasso Group, their three big, three biggest companies these days are uh, Blue Sky Uranium, Argentina Lithium and Energy, and Golden Arrow Resources. Golden Arrow Resources Corporation is an exploration company earning production income. Golden Arrow owns a 25% share of Puna Operations, a joint venture operated by SSR Mining, with more than eight years of forecast production and upside potential at the Prequitas Chinchillas silver mining project that's in Argentina. We also have as a podcast sponsor the Yukon Mining Alliance. That's a group of 17 companies actively exploring in the Yukon. Uh, Let me just give a a rundown of the companies. Alexco, Attack, Goldcorp, Nickel Creek, Strategic Metals, Victoria Gold, Western Copper and Gold, White Gold, Banyan Gold, Copper North Mining, Fireweed Zinc, Independence Gold, K2 Gold, Rockhaven Resources, Metallic Minerals, Trifecta, and Triumph Gold. And just some of the latest news from some of their members. Attack Resources, they are uh, getting ready for their 2018 exploration program at their Rackla Gold property in East Central Yukon. The combined 2018 exploration budget for Rackla is $13 million. That's uh, $7 million from Attack and $6 million from Barrett Gold. And that'll be uh, 20,000 meters of drilling starting in May. Another Yukon Mining Alliance member is White Gold. And they have just been admitted to the NASDAQ International Designation Program. And its common shares are trading in the United States under the ticker WHGOF, effective April 3rd. And our final sponsor of the podcast is our Mining Minute sponsor. That is SRK Consulting. And SRK Consulting is an independent international consulting practice providing focused advice and solutions to the earth and water resource industries. For mining projects, SRK offers services from exploration to mine closure. Established in 1974, SRK employs more than 1,400 professionals internationally in over 45 offices on six continents.
Now let's jump right into our Mining Minutes uh, sponsored session with SRK Consulting. This week, our staff writer, Richard Quarisa, caught up with Jeff Parsley. He is SRK's global chairman and a corporate consultant with more than 35 years of environmental and closure experience in the mining industry. He has worked with legal and policy aspects of mining projects since his early career and has been involved in the management of several abandoned mines in the western U.S., Jeff is a regular mine closure and closure cost estimating instructor at in-house workshops conducted for mining companies and U.S. government agencies. So Richard met with Jeff at the PDAC convention uh, earlier in March and uh, recorded this episode. Probably the most critical thing in the last, I would say, five to ten years, and I see it becoming a very important issue going forward, is the true integration of operations and mine closure. We're still early in that phase, I think, of the development of this part of the of the industry, but there are certainly people who have looked at issues such as design of waste rock dumps and the sequencing of how they're built to try and minimize the ultimate closure costs, not just simply the design of it, but the actual operation, the construction of these things. and. In the process of doing that, they can save money. They can make it a easier to close facility, which hopefully means better longevity of the closure design. But almost more importantly, the overall cost of that comes down. And in a, in a number of cases, there have been some good studies done by a few companies like Anglo, uh, an excellent paper by Carl Grant in 2015, documenting. I think three case studies that they did at Anglo operations around the world where they were able to actually show that the integration of operations and closure not only reduced the overall closure cost, but they were actually able to gain benefit today in the operations by actually rethinking how they were going to do their their waste management on the site. And that kind of thinking improves the overall value of any project. Seems like you really can't put enough of a premium on forethought and planning when it comes to this kind of thing. Absolutely, and then there's constant updates. I think we're going to see more and more integration as the industry matures and, quite frankly, younger people, younger than me even, start coming on. They have an understanding and awareness of the importance of mine closure, and I, I think we're going to just continue to see it get integrated into everything that the mines do from design all the way through the actual closure. Thank you, Jeff and Richard. Now, uh, just sit back, relax. We're going to have a long conversation about Peter Monk. Trish is going to join us shortly via Skype just after this break. And now we're joined with uh, Trish Saywell, our senior staff writer via Skype. 
And uh, I should say, uh, you know, we're running our Canadian Mining Symposium shortly in uh, London, April 24th, 25th. And what we're doing is, uh, this has been in the works for months, but we're uh, giving Peter Monk our Lifetime Achievement Award. And, of course, he passed away last week, so it'll be a posthumous award. He was uh, very gracious. He, we sent him an email, and he uh, he gave a long response, a very gracious response, uh, thanking us. And, uh, unfortunately, he was too ill to fly, so he, he couldn't attend. Uh, but Kelvin Dushnitsky, the president of Barrick, will be there to accept the award. And we're having a special dinner uh, hosted in London where P- Peter Monk uh, lived for a while. As part of that, uh, Trish has been working on a uh, very large feature about uh, Peter Monk's life. Uh, unfortunately, that's turned into an obituary. We're just checking in here with Trish. And uh, tell us some of the things that uh, st- stood out in your mind as you were writing the story. Well, just how extraordinary he was. Uh, you know, And he was one of Canada's biggest philanthropists. And every single person that I've interviewed over the last couple of months said the same thing, that he loved Canada, he was a true patriot, and so generous. And he himself would often say, you know, you can create wealth, you're entitled to the joy of its creation, but ultimately society makes that possible, and the wealth should therefore flow back to society. And you can see that in his donations over the course of his life. I mean, he donated about $300 million dollars, to, he and his wife, Melanie, to, to causes and institutions that were close to their heart. He uh, set up the Peter, Car- Peter Monk Cardiac Center at the Toronto General Hospital in 1997, and he donated more than $175 million to it, and he gave about $47 million to the U of T, where he graduated uh, with, en- in- with a degree in engineering, and set up the Monk School of Global Affairs and the Monk Debates and so on. A lot of people know all of this, but unfortunately, as, as you said, I never had the pleasure of meeting him. But through the interviews I did and watching the videos of his speeches and so forth and interviews that others had, uh, did with him, it, what really stood out was how he just loved Canada so much and he wanted to give back. And in fact, in November, and I think this may have been his last speech publicly, it was right when he uh, he donated $100 million to the Toronto General Hospital, which yes. was the largest single gift ever made to a Canadian hospital. And I listened to his speech and uh, he said, you know, it wasn't charity, it wasn't a gift, it was repaying a debt. And he would say that over and over again in all of his speeches. And I think yes. it stemmed from the appreciation he had for Canada when he and his family arrived after after the Second World War. Mm-hmm. To give you a bit of background uh, of his life in Hungary uh, before the war, I mean, he was just 16 years old when the Nazis occupied Budapest in, in March of 1944. And they started deporting Jews to Auschwitz almost immediately. But the Monk family managed to get out of Hungary just a few months after the Nazis uh, occupied uh, the country. And I go into greater detail in this in my article, but it, it's an incredible story. And, and there was never a time during those two months that he was trying to get out of the country that it was guaranteed that uh, he would ever get out alive. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, as everyone knows, more than 400,000 Hungarian Jews were deported to Auschwitz. And uh, so, you know, it was an incredible story. And then he arrived in Toronto at the age of 18 in 1948, he didn't speak a word of English, and he went to high school here, Lawrence Park, and uh, then later, as I said earlier, to U of T, and he would always tell people how he was welcomed with such open arms and with such generosity, and nobody cared where he'd come from. They only cared about what he could uh, do in Canada and his new sort of second chance in Canada. Yeah, and uh, just to think of his business career, uh, you know, Peter Monk, first and foremost, was a businessman. He had many, many interests. It, you know, we, of course, at Northern Miner, think of him 
uh, directly with the Bear Gold success, which was his big, big, biggest success by far, I would say. But really, he, he had four different careers, at least. Uh, one was in consumer electronics. He was a resort builder, uh, the gold mining, of course, and then real estate. So, uh, you know, he spent his 30s completely involved in consumer electronics. His 40s, he was the uh, resort person. And uh, it really struck me, uh, just reviewing his life, that he never got into gold mining until his mid-50s. For anyone who's older, like... Think of uh, just starting into a whole new business in your f- mid-50s and uh, and the t- tremendous success that came out of that. Uh, that is so true. I mean, you do have to remember that uh, he didn't get into Barrick until the 50s, in his mid-50s. He had entrepreneurship in, in his bones. His grandfather was, was, a, was an entrepreneur in Hungary. And so just four years after he went to university, I'm talking about Peter Monk, he started his first company in 1956. Uh, he called it Peter Monk Associates. And he built and installed sound systems. Then, then of course, he started up Claritone Sound Corporation with his partner, David Gilmore. Right. Uh, which, not not the know, Pink Floyd guitarist, but the uh, furniture <laughs> importer. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, he started up in the high-end stereos. It was a huge success, as you've said. You know, it was endorsed by people like Frank Sinatra and Oscar Peterson and so forth. Um, and But that, that business didn't do very well. And then he mo- moved into the hotel and resort business, and he founded the Southern Pacific to develop a hotel and resort complex in Fiji, and then he took that public. Uh, he acquired Travelodge, which was the largest hotel and resort chain in Australia in the South Pacific, and then he sold that to a consortium of private investors in 1981. And his other businesses, as you said, you know, outside of Barrick, he started the Horsham Corporation, which was also listed on the TSX, and that merged with Trizec Corporation to create Trizec Han. And then, well, Monk bought Trizec from a syndicate of bank lenders, and then yes. he developed it into one of the largest owners and operators of commercial office properties in the U.S. and Canada. And Trizec was sold to Brookfield and Blackstone for $9 billion. And then very late, much later in his life, sort of after the, the, the Barrick years, he bought an old naval base in Montenegro and turned it into a sort of a luxurious harbor for yachts that were owned by the super rich. And then including, you know, the Russian oligarchs and people like that. And then he sold it last year to, to the Investment Corporation of Dubai for an undisclosed amount. So, right, and we should say that the, the Trizac Han, they had these fantastic, what would you call them, landmark uh, assets like the, the Watergate Hotel and the CN Tower and the Sears Tower. And it was like classic extravagant monk style. And then the, the Porto Montenegro, people have to realize this was a like a Soviet-era military base. There's abandoned ships. There's you know, Think of the weird pollution that would be in a military base. Like, uh, There's really something quite poetic to clean up an old military base and turn it into a playground for yachts, especially in your 80s. <laughs> I know. It's incredible. It really is. And that's what people always say. You know, he's such a visionary. He thinks big. Uh, he, takes, he takes risks. But just to, just to get back to it, I guess we should focus more on Barrick. But you know, after he invested in the oil and gas business in 1980, that didn't go so well. It was the wrong time, basically, to be doing that. But he figured out that, you know, with apartheid South Africa, European investors wanted somewhere safer to, to put their money. So he wanted to create this, you know, global champion uh, of a gold mining company in North America. So he shifted his focus to gold in 83, 1983. But unlike most mining startups, you know, which begin as exploration companies, he thought, no, 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 we're going to take a different approach. We're going to just start buying, producing mines. And it worked. I mean, it was brilliant. Um, In some ways, I see him bringing the real estate ethic into uh, mining (laughs) with a lot of property deals right off the bat. That's that's right. And, you know, so his strategy was to become a North American leader in the gold industry, grow through acquisitions, 
follow conservative financial policies, and minimize risk through hedging. Now, I know you know quite a bit about the hedging stuff, so you can jump in there if you'd like. Yeah. First, I want to just jump in. Just a couple of quotes from, um, uh, I was reviewing, I took it off my bookshelf, and touched it in about 10 years, but the Titans book by Peter C. Newman, and he has a chapter on Monk in there. Back to the, the clear tone, uh, you know, big success and then spectacular failure, where the company mm-hmm. was basically taken from him. And uh, he had a couple of great quotes, I thought, that resonates through his whole life. Talking about Claritone, he says, It was my first love, my first infatuation with the romance of business. It was unrequited, it was immensely uncompleted, and maybe that's why it made such a major impression on me. But it was an experience that formed the foundation for everything that I have accomplished in my life. Uh, He goes on to say, It was the classic impossible dream. Everything I've done afterward has been child's play compared with Claritone. My ego was destroyed. What I learned was never to give away your destiny. Don't put control into the hands of a body that doesn't have interests aligned with your own. And and you see that uh, fierceness uh, through the rest of his career. That's such a great quote. Oh, my God. It really sums him up, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. You know, Barrick had, had started off Barrick Petroleum. There was Barrick Resources, American Barrick Resources back when, you know, pre-9-11, people loved to throw American into their <laughs> company names and then uh, settled into American Barrick Resources and then... 83 was turned to gold from, from petroleum, and then 84 was really the pivotal year, and that's because uh, it brought in Bob Smith, Brian Meikle, and Alan Hill into the company. You know, their company um, it was heavily indebted, and Barrick wasn't, but it brought in uh, the technical know-how, and for the next 15 years, you know, Bob Smith, Meikle, and Hill, um, they were the technical brains behind the uh, move. And every time, I, you know, I was looking through all our old stories, you know, over 30 years about Peter Monk, and every time he got an award, he'd always say, hey, I don't know about anything about mining. I'm the business guy. Is always uh, Bob Smith. Bob Smith led the way on the technical end. So he was always very gracious. And when we awarded uh, Peter Monk the Mining Person of the Year, uh, it was Bob Smith and Monk together. So they were the team, uh, the business savvy and the technical savvy. That's that's exactly right. And, you know, in fact, our paper uh, described their partnership as, you know, Smith built, led, and inspired the technical team that transformed Peter Monk's vision into reality. It was one of the mining world's most successful and enduring partnerships, which I think was well stated. So you think 1984, Bob Smith and Monk to get together. March 24th, 1987, uh, you got the gold strike discovery. This is Barrick's premier asset. You know, I, I think undisputably the best gold deposit in North America. This is in Nevada. You've got a first hole, 600 feet of 0.36 ounces per ton. And then later you've got 450 feet of one ounce, 1.1 ounce per ton. And for, that's the first discovery hole. They didn't even tell Peter about it because uh, Bob Smith thought it was someone was salting it in the in the core shack. Over the next 15 months, they were adding one million ounces a month to the reserves uh, resources at Gold Strike. So. You know, 15, 15 months, 15 million ounces. Today, I think they've mined 42 million ounces of gold out of Gold Strike, and it, it just keeps producing. So it's been this powerhouse behind the whole Barrick world. And, uh, you know, Monk is the daring businessman, so it allowed Barrick to be daring in all kinds of things because uh, yep. it, there was this powerhouse cash flow every year. And today, you know, today it's still like a million ounces a year right out of Gold Strike. And I'm not sure where it all ends, but uh, the Gold Strike was key to the whole Barrick story. Yeah, and it's so interesting because when they bought it for $62 million in 1986, you know, everyone 
laughed and said, oh, what are you doing? You overpaid for this asset. Nobody wanted it. And, and Newmont could have had it. It had adjoining or property nearby. They turned it down because of the geology. It was challenging. But, but Barrick realized, hey, you know, it's a modest heat bleach operation now producing around 50,000 ounces of gold, but it's probably got 600,000 ounces and it's probably got more than a million. So they, they took a huge gamble and, and were really ribbed in the investment community for it. But, you know, it became Barrick's flagship property for 20 years. And as you say, it, it's still producing. It was incredible. And their purchase price would be, you know, a dollar an ounce or something today. Yeah. <laughs> so it was yeah, fantastic. And also in terms of like innovative things, you know, Barrick, you know, used autoclaves at Gold Strike on a scale that had never been seen before. And they increased gold recoveries from like 35% to about 85%. Right. And one of the earlier purchases, they had started experimenting with autoclaves and uh, refractory ore. And this was like full-blown technology that had been brought in from the oil industry. Where you, right. it, for people who aren't familiar with it, it's, you know, this Carlin-style deposit. I mean, they're very large, but you get... They're very dirty, arsenic-filled, uh, all kinds of nasty uh, metal sulfides in there, and you can't see the gold. So it's very dirty to deal with, and you end up with a lot of waste. So uh, you put it in these, you know, acid-filled pressure cookers, and that's how you get the gold out. So I always find it quite ironic. You've got Nevada is the, is the silver state, and California is the gold state. The 49ers were crossing Nevada to get to California to the gold, but really all the gold was in Nevada. But uh, it was just this fine-grained stuff you couldn't get out until the last few decades uh, where this autoclaving uh, was perfected. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, you know, as you said, uh, he was such a risk-taker. Risk -taker. And, um, you know, another example of that was when he bought Arequipa Resources on the basis of nine exploration holes, just nine, and he paid a billion dollars for it. Right, so he, and then... He had guts, you know, he could take these risks and... The one word I caught it, you know, reading all the stuff about Monk lately, just daring was the word that come out at me for uh, one word to describe uh, uh, Monk. But also the the Peru one, apart from the you know buying it on eight or nine holes, is the political situation. Peru was was quite dodgy. You had a lot of uh, internal warfare within Peru, and uh, you know doubts about security. So uh, he was you know jumping into a, a politically difficult situation, knowing that it would sort itself out. So. Uh, it was a, like a doubly daring uh, move with the Arequipa purchase. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, in October of 2005, they bought, uh, you know, Placer Dome. You know, it was almost as big as Barrick. And with that deal, Barrick became the largest gold producer in the world, displacing Newmont, ironically. And Placer Dome had 12 mines and four projects. I mean, it was huge. It had 50 million ounces of gold reserves, 6 billion pounds of copper reserves, you know. And, right. And it was also the largest mining deal at the time in world history. Or Canadian history? I'm not sure. And uh, before that, you had Sutton Resources was a big purchase with Boolean Hulu in 99. And then uh, in 2001, Bear took over Homestake, which was the venerable uh, U.S. miner out of San Francisco. So it was like the, yeah. the new school took over the old school there. That's right. Homestake was the oldest mining company in the world at that point. And it was Barrick's introduction to Australia. Right. Oh, I should say uh, Placidome was a hostile takeover, too. So that, that shows the, some of the brashness there. Right. So so basically, with, when you look at the first 25 years of Barrick, it went from sort of, you know, producing 57,000 ounces of gold in its first full year of production to like 5.3 million last year. Now, you, you talked about Monk, the benefactor, and those were some huge numbers there. I just want to say there's a few, I mean, there's all kinds of small things going on. Like there's, uh, you know, there was the wildfires in uh, Fort McMurray, and, and Monk wrote a $1 million check because 
you know, especially he said he saw the families fleeing and reminded of his Hungarian uh, trauma there. Something that would touch our own uh, industry here as a journalist. Monk gave $5 million to the Fraser Institute to set up the Peter Monk Center for Free Enterprise Education. So uh, some of that money it goes to the Fraser Institute setting up a workshop for journalists. They have two in Toronto, one in Vancouver, once a year during the summer, and they literally fly journalists from all over Canada, put them up in a hotel, and uh, over two and a half days uh, have you know very high-level uh, workshops about uh, sort of basic economics, and it particularly helpful for business writers or writers writing about government budgets and uh, especially teaching about hidden costs of uh, policy decisions. Our journalist attended is quite useful. It's kind of uh, you know, Milton Friedman style uh, uh, that the Fraser Institute would be known for, but it wasn't heavy-handed or anything. You know, Leslie Stokes was couldn't attend in Vancouver, so they flew her to Toronto with no questions. So, so those things are going on behind the scenes. Uh, I should also say I'm just reading the Peter Kuttenbrauer uh, write up in the National Post, and they're saying most of the donations will probably come after his death. So we probably hear a lot more about these uh, these donations. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. And there's also the 43 million to the Technion Israel Institute of Technology as well in Israel. That's that's right. And just to, I just wanted to uh, read one other thing he said. He said, you know, after being welcomed to Canada as an 18-year-old and all of that, he said, from then on in, every step of my career, which has been long and boring and full of failures and successes, every step of my career, I felt that enormous desire to become more Canadian, to do to do more for Canada. And that that's a, that's a quote. And there's another there's another really good one from uh, from him in 2011. When he spoke at the Canadian Club, he said, this is a country that does not ask about your origins. It only concerns itself with your destiny, not where you come from, but where you're going. Uh, this, this Canadian attitude, he said, the Canadian inclusiveness is so vital. It's a characteristic of such overwhelming value and importance and distinguishes Canada from everybody else. Right. And I, I think personally, uh, you know, he had the tremendous hollowing out of corporate Canada in the mining industry in 2005, 2006, 2007 or so. Uh, where, you know, these giants of Canadian mining, Naranda Inco, Falconbridge, and earlier, you know, Rio Algum, these companies were bought off and all these uh, terrific corporate jobs were eliminated in Canada. And uh, Peter Monk, uh, I think of this Kerwin uh, collection money-raising um, event at, at the ROM, the Royal Ontario Museum, where uh, Monk got up and just railed against, you know, people not building a Canadian champion. You know, there was a, a period where these these super majors were being formed, BHP Billiton, uh, Valet, Rio Tinto, and Canada, you know, could have put something together with Noranda, Falconbridge, and Co. Monk was the only one sort of speaking out for that kind of thing. Uh, of course, he fell short, but he did keep a Canadian presence. He insisted uh, Barrick be in Toronto when Barrick tried to merge with Newmont there in uh, 2014 or so. Part of it was, you know, has to be in Toronto. He didn't quite pull it off, but I, I think it was in his mind, and I think that's part of the reason he took over, or pushed to take over Equinox Minerals, big copper producer, and, you know, it was, a, it was in fact, quite a big mistake. That it was uh, not what they wanted, they major write-off on that, but I think that was part of the reason, branching off into something outside gold. And I think that part of that comes from both the fleeing the Nazis and also the Claritone, we're talking about keeping control over your destiny, so that was, like, right in his bones. Mm-hmm. Definitely. The hedging uh, years, you know, they started off brilliantly, and he made a lot of money doing it that way, and that allowed him to do the acquisitions. But then, you know, no one could have foreseen, you know, negative interest rates and 
and that whole thing. So it shows that you can be smart for 10 years and then one year comes and you, you, you know, you unfortunately are on the wrong side of the decision, right? Right. So I think, especially for our younger listeners, what you have to understand is back in the 90s, people weren't doing the hedging and the brilliant things uh, Peter Monk did was, you know, you have to go approach these central banks. They've got, you know, millions of ounces in their vaults just sitting there getting 0% interest. So he approaches them, hey, I can, I'll uh, pay you 1% interest on your gold instead of 0% and you don't have to touch the gold. It just still sits in the same vaults. We'll just change the paperwork. But to get that, uh, the loans going, he, he has to prove up reserves, you know, fast and in a large sense. So something like, I tripped, I was to, uh, Tanzania, the Sutton Resources, the, the Bullion Hulu deposit, like maybe literally two weeks before Barrick bought it in, uh, February or March 1999. It, it really struck me this was this huge linear structure, completely vertical. I don't know if it's two kilometers long, it's this wedge shape. And it just goes down for maybe two kilometers. I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, the traditional way, the say Valdor of 50 years ago, you drill off two or three years of reserves and then you mine a little more. You don't want to spend all this money exploring with these, you know, very expensive holes deep down that into reserves you won't mine for 10 or 15 years. But if you're trying to deal with gold loans, you need 10 million ounces like next year, not, not in 20 years from now. So suddenly you're drilling off Bullion Hulu. Uh, to get 10, 50 million ounces of reserves immediately because it's involved with the whole gold loans. So, you know, Barrett had to, probably Peter Monk had to go around and set up all these, uh, loans that nobody had done before. So, you know, in theory, uh, you get the loans, but someone asks you to go ahead and sell it to people. In that era of the 90s, say you're, you're literally borrowing gold at 1%, say, and then you sell it, and then you take that money, and then you buy very safe bonds at seven, eight, nine percent, because uh, those you know, interest rates were much higher then. So you're immediately making this spread. So your money's already made just on that spread. So it's like the mining the gold is almost like an afterthought. You're paying back the loan with the mining later. So the gold loans even affected the way you drill out a deposit, which was uh, something I didn't quite understand until uh, Bully and Hulu. Hmm. And then the one time I did meet Peter Monk was. At the same time, a, a Boolean Hulu event at the at the head office of Barrick, where they had they bought it and they had drilled it off, and they had this fantastic mine plan. But uh, I just happened to meet him in the hallway, and I was quite struck. Like he's a very tiny, very delicate, uh, of course, impeccably dressed man, and just almost like an elfish aliveness. Like a very sensitive person, very delicate, uh, alive, interested, and uh, you know, I'm just a stranger walking through the hallways of Barrick, and he, he immediately. Start talking anim- animatedly, and uh, like he's just very alive, interested. Um, and this, you know, this would be um, 15, year, 15, 20 years ago. So he's an older man, but still very vital. I was quite struck by that. And uh, at that same meeting, again, the, uh, the Boolean Hulu was very instructive to me. They had um, come up with this mine plan that was uh, very aggressive. And uh, like I, I'd been at the site uh, a couple of years earlier, two or three years earlier, and uh, it was it was the first underground mine in Tanzanian history. Like the, the, the men in Tanzania were not used to this kind of mining. They'd done artisanal mining. It was maybe Ashanti just started open pit mining. So I've been underground. And it, it was horrendous work under there. And um, two or three days before our visit, a raise had collapsed and killed uh, at least one man there. So the Tanzanian men underground were terrified. And uh, a lot of them didn't even know how to drive a car, right? We were driving a pickup truck with a stick shift and the 
the driver didn't know how to run a stick shift. So this was like way too aggressive <laughs> a mining plan. Uh, you know, you could pull it off in Valdor or or somewhere like that or Nevada, but so you're in the head office and they're laying out this plan for building Hulu, and it's like there's no way you can do this because it doesn't matter if you bring in South African managers. So the, it's interesting the kind of fantasy world that can take over within a corporate head office uh, that uh, disconnects you from the ground. And and the other thing about Billion Hulu, you know, as a young journalist, was uh, until then Barrick had said we're only going to be operating safe countries. We're in Nevada. We're in uh, you know Peru is now safe and Canada and uh, we would never go to Africa. It's too high risk and we're all about you know top mm-hmm. countries. And then on a dime they'll oh we're buying a major asset in Africa, heart <laughs> of Africa where no one's ever done underground mining before. So. I, I learned not never to believe country, companies too much, but but at the same time you you have to be nimble. You know, if there's an opportunity there, just jump on it and don't live by uh, these credos that may not make sense uh, when you have new information. That's so true. Yeah. And so the the equinox was a bit of a failure, and then you had Pasqualano. You know, had all kinds of problems. It was it was an expensive trip, and one of the bigger incidents back in. Uh, 1997 was was the battle for Briex back when people thought it was real, and uh, Barrick was a prominent uh, bidder for Briex, and it didn't quite work out. But there was another interesting quote from the Peter C. Newman um, uh, book, and, and you know Peter C. Newman has a very similar background to uh, Peter escaping Central Europe as a young uh, Jewish teenager and going to U of T and that kind of thing uh, around the same age. Peter quotes uh, Peter Monk talking about Briex. He says. Uh, you know, they were absolutely paranoid, and that was why they kept on saying that there was more and more gold and got their shareholders to say, don't force us into a, into this deal. I had been in bed with depression when I lost the deal in February. I had never tried so hard, and I just couldn't understand it. Nothing worked, and suddenly, the moment it was announced as a fraud, I went from a deep depression and a psychosomatic-induced flu to health in 15 minutes. It was like someone opening up a window on a totally dark tunnel. Everything, all the meetings, all the delays, all the incompatible little details, everything totally made sense. That was the sad ending of the Briex saga. Lived such a remarkable life. And you think of just some of the personal details. You know, he lived a lot of time in uh, Switzerland, which uh, he felt far more connected to Switzerland than Hungary. But, uh, you know, we had friends with different billionaires and uh, a personal anecdote. You know, he liked. Uh, would hung out, hang out with Prince Charles, and uh, Prince Charles has, had his most humiliating um, period there, where uh, there was a recording of him uh, talking to Camilla, saying, "Oh, Camilla, if I had, if I was reborn again, I'd want to be reincarnated as a tampon or something like that." You know, super embarrassing. Worldwide news. So there's Peter Monk in Switzerland uh, consoling Prince Charles over four days. To <laughs> so that's just another week in the life of Peter Monk. So so he did also tend to befriend these outsiders in the world, like hanging out with Adnan Khashoggi, the uh, Arab arms dealer in the 70s, and uh, Brian Mulroney, when he was, you know, one of the most hated men in Canada, kicked out of, uh, or, you know, resigned from office, I should say, um, brought him into the barrack fold, uh, friends with Conrad Black, uh, had many uh, good things to say about Augusto Pinochet, apart from his, uh, some of the uh, human rights abuses, of course. Uh, so he, he would befriend these outsiders, like he himself had been an outsider, so that's an interesting aspect to it as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
He would he loved to hobnob with prime ministers and presidents. Every year he'd have a dinner at his chalet in Switzerland after was was on the final night of the World Economic Forum in Davos and it was like a who's who of of people in the world and everybody wanted to get on that invitation list to to Peter Monk's uh, <laughs> dinner. You know, he loved to talk. Lasson, Pierre Lasson who who I spoke to about uh, Peter Monk said that um he was a promoter and a world-class individual. Maybe we could talk a little bit about Peter as a corporate leader, just within the company. And you spoke to some of the people that were in that role. Yes, I did. Uh, a lot of people who have worked at Barrick over various points in their careers. And um, people would say that he, he, was, uh, he listened, he worked extremely hard, he never stopped thinking strategically you know, um, about the business and... Uh, he he took advice. He knew what his strengths and weaknesses were. He he could delegate. Uh, Bill Burchill, who worked with him for a very long time, I think he joined Monk in the 70s in the post Clarendon days, said um, he pushed himself. He was on the job mentally 24-7. That's what entrepreneurs do. They sweat blood. They sweat everything. And uh, he was also very generous to his, his, his people at, at the company. Uh, Stephen Dattles, who worked for him, in the Barrick Petroleum years, he's actually written a very nice uh, piece that will accompany the profile in in the next issue. Oh, great. Um, called him almost a father figure, you know. He he said, he, you know, he'd go into his office, he'd get up close in a very touchy-feely way like a father to his son. And when you left his office, you wanted to, you wanted to do anything in your power to help Peter and Barrick succeed. So he had this way of just really energizing the people he worked with. And people really wanted to give him their best... Right. And I, I think of, um, you know, recently there was controversy about John Thornton coming in. Peter Monk, he retired as chairman in 2014, and John Thornton came in, uh, I think, first as co-chairman and full chairman. And there was uh, controversy over the uh, executive pay, which was rejected by shareholders, stuff like that. So uh, I think of uh, Peter Monk getting up and saying, you know, John Thornton is the best investment decision I've ever made, you know, in 32 years with Barrick, even better than Gold Strike, you know. It's this patently ridiculous thing to say, but that, that's the kind of backing up he would give to people that he felt needed that. That's right. And it was very difficult, people uh, would tell me, to move him off his convictions. You know, it was really hard to persuade him. And I think it was Jamie Sokolsky said, you know, when you went into a meeting with uh, with Peter, you had to be extremely well prepared. He wasn't a fan of, of long presentations. He just sort of zeroed in on what the essence of, of a proposal was and, and could make decisions quickly. And in fact, Pierre Lasson talked about that when uh, the Lasson and Schulich had a royalty on Goldstrike before Barrett bought the property. So after Barrett bought it, they, they quickly met with Peter just to iron out the, the royalty deal to make sure that, you know, it was uh, clad bound and, and what they weren't going to end up in court, you know, years later. And, and Pierre Lasson said, you know, he met him for the first time when he was in his early, when Pierre was in his early 30s. And he knew at the time that he was meeting this tremendous personality with a huge reputation, a bigger-than-life kind of guy. And he said what amazed him was that within a few minutes of, of the meeting, Peter had assessed uh, the situation. He, he, he agreed with everything Lassonde and Schulich had thought about, and, and it was done. Like Pierre Lassonde said, you know, he didn't need to go to 12 committees to, to make a decision. He could make a decision quickly, and, and that was it. Right, right. And I guess I'll just, uh, I'd like to mention a few things that Ian Delaney talked about because uh, he worked with Monk uh, from about 87 until 1990 uh, through Horsham, those years. Mm -hmm. Yes. And 
And he said, you know, Monk was a visionary who could see things that his colleagues and his partners couldn't. And, and that was truly, and, and, he, and he could think on the large scale. And he also said he was very generous with his partners. You know, and he said, like any real fundamental entrepreneur and risk taker, Peter made money, Peter lost money, Peter had partners, but you never, ever felt that win or lose, they had been abused by their partnership. And, and, and then he said, I can think of quite a few guys who couldn't say that. Right. And Delaney was fired, too. And, and he would later say, you know, Peter Monk should have fired me a year earlier. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> and we haven't really touched on, uh, you know, his family life that much. And it, it certainly, you can read that in other places we're focusing on his career. But it's, it's also interesting, like he didn't set up a family business like the Demeret family or the Westons in Canada. Uh, the children, uh, I think five children, sort of do their own things. But uh, I think it was a, just a quote from his daughter Nina uh, about life in the monk household. He said, she said, uh, I believe she's a journalist, uh, possibly in New York. We always lived well. To my father, deals that went south, share prices that collapsed, companies that went bust were merely blips on the path to success. He never doubted we would make it all back and then some. So why engage in belt tightening? So that's that kind of optimism. I think of these daring moves. He has quite a lot of business failures, but the successes just completely overwhelm the uh, the failures along the way. It's quite striking. That's, that that is true. And I actually interviewed Marcelo Rocco, who who knew Monk early early on, um, and he said, you know, he had a great imagination, and and he said if something didn't work, Monk didn't collapse his tent. He'd go on to the next things. And and in terms of his philanthropy, I mean, it was Ian Delaney who said, you know, Peter always said that he was going to be sure that his children were educated and launched in their careers, but it was his intention always to give the bulk of his wealth back to Canada. So that sort of sums him up. Right. And, you know, Barrick would uh, give scholarships to the children of uh, their employees to, to help them with post-secondary education, something like that. So he was always a proponent of education. I think of um, that um, Rock of Ages uh, Kerwin uh, fundraiser, uh, he was also ed- concerned with education within the mine industry. Uh, this is a quote, because uh, I, I tended, I wrote the story. Monk said, um, mining and geology education totally disintegrated in Canada 20 years ago. He, he's speaking this uh, seven years ago. Now we are bereft, Monk said. We are facing a crisis in that the very foundation of this enormous potential that we are benefiting from today may disappear unless we put the funds, the efforts and the human commitment to, into recreating the educational basis that trains the geologists and the mining engineers that Canada has become famous for, for 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. So there was that. And I think also, this is when he was inducted into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, which we're a co-sponsor of, co-founder of. Uh, Monk, in his uh, acceptance speech, said, uh, when we contemplate the future of our community and our society, we are proud to be proponents and promulgators of the free enterprise system. We must realize that only this system can provide increased well-being and wealth throughout, throughout this world. So when he was giving these donations to uh, University of Toronto, like, I believe it, it's stipulated that it has to be like for you know not against free market systems and stuff like that. So it's kind of interesting uh, aspect there to the whole thing: education and pr- promoting free enterprise as well, including through the Fraser Institute donation. Yeah, a lot of the the people I talked to did did talk about uh, his generosity to his employees and 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 those scholarships that you mentioned were a big part of that. Yeah, I think in my mind for the rest of my life, I think the apex will be. Uh, I believe we both attended this. It was the Barrick 25th anniversary party, 
at the um, Four Seasons Hotel in Toronto. I think they're, they're older one there uptown. And it was like the glistening. It was before all the problems of cost overruns and the, the CEO's uh, revolving door and stuff like that. But I've, that was like, I think, the apex of the whole Barrick time. Uh, hmm. And that, that sticks in my mind. It was a glittering event and all the directors and the founders and uh, quite quite something. So that'll always stick in my mind as as a as a pinnacle of uh, the Barrick world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and some people also talked about, uh, well, this is a little bit different, but, you know, about, you know, his appreciation of, of the work-life balance. And he wanted his people to work hard, but also, you know, have balance in their lives. And he himself was a family guy. As you said, five kids, 14 grandchildren. You know, he was married to Melanie for, I think, 45 years. And it was a wonderful marriage, according to the people I spoke with. And, and that gave him the sort of stability in his personal life that sort of allowed him to focus perhaps uh you know not be distracted on 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 the business side so so that was that was interesting just like and, to end and with with uh with a speech that you know that speech i referred to earlier in november when he gave the 100 million dollars to to the peter Mar- monk cardiac center he said and it's sort of prophetic prophetic he said let me tell you this was a hell of a trip when you're reaching 90 you can allow the luxury of leaning back a little and starting to dream my dream was always about trying to repay canada and to realize that dream this is the best country in the world from every point of view. Right. That's terrific. And, uh, yeah, so let's wrap it up there. And in our next issue, we'll have Trish with her full uh, full report, and then we'll have that event in uh, London coming up. We'll see what comes out of that. Thanks very much, Trish. Yeah, thanks, John. That was great. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. does it for episode 98 of the northern minor podcast hope you enjoyed it and have a great week and join us again next episode bye bye